Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the early 1990s, British art dealer Antonio Alberto Margiotta traveled to the upscale neighborhood of Coconut Grove in Miami, Florida. He wanted to visit the local antiques fair. It always proved eventful and this time didn't disappoint. A balding man with white blonde hair approached Margiotta. Speaking in hushed tones with a thick Boston accent, the man asked if he'd be interested in buying some of the most prized art in existence. Paintings stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Marjota was taken aback and intrigued. He was no stranger to the world of stolen antiques, but this was something different. The largest of its kind, the heist had sent shockwaves through the art world. He couldn't imagine the asking price. Ten million dollars, the man said. After Marjota countered at one million dollars, the blonde man recoiled and ended the conversation. He wasn't interested in negotiating. But before walking away, Marjota asked the seller his name. Somehow, one of America's most violent gangsters became involved in its largest art heist because the man responded, Whitey Bulger. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we examine history's most compelling mysteries. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on the Gardner Museum heist, the largest art theft in world history. The case has remained unsolved for over 30 years, and the paintings are still missing. Last week, we examined the museum break-in and robbery. We walked through the thieves' methods and discussed the FBI's initial hunt to find the culprits. This week, we'll dive deeper into the decades-long investigation and examine how the case became enmeshed in the grimy world of Boston organized crime. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
At 2.45 a.m. on March 18, 1990, two thieves snuck out the side door of the Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. They carried over $200 million worth of world-famous art. It took two trips to get their plunder loaded into their hatchback parked outside. Once finished, they drove off into the misty Boston night and haven't been seen since. To this day, the thieves have never been brought to justice. According to the FBI's art crime team, in cases like this, identifying the culprits is secondary to recovering the actual artwork. But that hasn't been accomplished either. The location of the missing paintings has remained a mystery for over 30 years. In 1996, FBI agent Neil Cronin took over the Gardner heist case. After six years of work, the investigation established the thieves were likely associated with local gangs. So to locate the paintings, Cronin descended into the dangerous world of Boston organized crime. In particular, he focused on Carmelo Merlino, a low-level criminal associated with the Boston Mafia. Four years earlier, after being arrested on a drug charge, Merlino claimed he had information on the stolen Gardner paintings. He tried to leverage this knowledge in exchange for a shorter sentence. At the time, the FBI didn't take Merlino seriously. But after taking over the investigation, Cronin circled back to Merlino's claims and put the heist's possible mafia connections under a microscope. If Merlino had information, the thieves were likely old associates. Cronin looked for members of Merlino's gang who fit the profile of the robbers and found a match. George Reisfelder. A small-time crook, Reisfelder made national news in the 70s after serving 16 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He was exonerated, but he returned to his criminal ways in Boston with reckless abandon. In addition to matching one of the burglars' physical description provided by the museum's security guards, Reisfelder owned a red hatchback car similar to the one eyewitnesses saw the night of the heist. And his friend, Leonard DiMuzio, a fellow petty thief, fit the description of the second robber. Reisfelder's siblings also told investigators they'd seen a painting similar to one of the Gardner pieces, Edouard Manet's Shea Tortoni, hanging brazenly in their brother's bedroom. But the FBI wasn't ever able to question Reisfelder. Less than a year after the heist, he died of a drug overdose. Investigators suspected foul play, but they officially ruled his death an accident due to lack of evidence. That same year, Leonard DiMuzio, the second suspected robber, was killed, shot dead and dumped in the trunk of a car. Unfortunately, no one was arrested for his murder, and the FBI never found evidence connecting the death to the Gardner heist. So it could have been the Boston mob tying up loose ends, or it could have been coincidence. Either way, it didn't change the fact that the FBI's two best leads were dead. At least they were left with one major suspect still alive, another member of Merlino's gang named David Turner. The FBI had been surveilling Turner for years and tracking his involvement in arms dealing, drug smuggling, and robberies. They suspected Turner took part in several mob hits, including killing Leonard DiMuzio. 
but they never found enough evidence to convict him of any violent crimes, so he remained active in the underworld. As early as 1992, Turner's name popped up in the FBI's case files on the Gardner heist. Multiple informants reportedly told investigators he'd acted as one of the thieves, but his fingerprints didn't match those found at the museum. Turner also had an alibi. At the time of the heist, credit card, rental car records, and corroborating accounts placed him in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, more than 1,500 miles away. He was apparently picking up a shipment of cocaine. Because of this, investigators initially dismissed his participation in the heist, but Agent Cronin pointed to a discrepancy. The Social Security listed on the rental car records didn't actually belong to Turner, and someone else could have used his credit card in Florida while he remained in Boston. In fact, the transaction may have even been premeditated for the express purpose of giving Turner an alibi. To learn the truth, the FBI needed to bring him in for questioning. On February 7, 1999, David Turner sat in the passenger seat of a red Honda Accord. His associate, Stephen Rossetti, slowly drove the car around the TRC Auto and Electric Shop in Dorchester, Massachusetts. They were patiently waiting for their boss, Carmelo Merlino, to appear. They intended to rob a local armored car depot, a major operation that could result in a windfall of more than $50 million. But the morning wasn't going according to plan. Merlino was supposed to be outside the shop at 6.30 a.m. sharp. With every passing minute, Turner and Rossetti grew increasingly anxious. They were in a vulnerable position. They'd loaded the car with enough firepower to take on an entire police force, including five pistols, a rifle, bulletproof vests, and a grenade. If arrested, they'd face serious charges. Possession of the grenade alone could spell decades behind bars. Fifteen minutes after the scheduled pickup time, Turner and Rossetti decided to leave. They couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. And they were right. As soon as Rossetti turned the car away from the repair shop, a pair of SUVs appeared from around the corner and slammed into their vehicle. A squad of FBI officials, including Agent Neil Cronin, emerged, guns drawn. After placing Turner and Rossetti in handcuffs, the agents brought them to the FBI building in downtown Boston, and they placed Turner in an isolated room for interrogation. Turner expected to be questioned about the robbery, his relationship with Carmelo Merlino, and the inner workings of the Boston Mafia. But instead, Investigators asked him about a crime that occurred almost a decade earlier, the heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Agent Cronin took the lead, claiming the FBI had physical evidence and statements proving Turner committed the theft. He even offered the gangster a deal. If he handed over the paintings, he'd make any armed robbery charges disappear. Turner called Cronin's bluff and refused to confess. He maintained his story. He'd been in Florida at the time and didn't know anything about the heist. Even if he did, he wouldn't snitch. Mobsters operated under their own code of ethics, and they swore to never talk to the FBI. So prosecutors moved forward with armed robbery charges. 
Cronin hoped some time in prison would convince the gangsters to talk. Any information they had on the Gardner heist might be exchanged for a lighter sentence. But each one maintained their story. They didn't know anything. Whether this was true or not, the case stalled at the turn of the 21st century until an independent investigator entered the fray, someone less constrained by the red tape of an official law enforcement agency. Coming up, one of the world's most famous art detectives takes on the case. The Internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loey, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. After 10 years, the FBI's investigation into the 1990 Gardner Museum heist seemed to reach a standstill. But as it did, renowned art detective Harold Smith breathed new life into the case. A larger-than-life personality, Smith had the physical appearance to match. After skin cancer took his right eye and some cartilage in the face, he wore an eye patch and a prosthetic nose, but he let nothing stand in his way. Smith spent nearly four decades tracking down stolen artwork from all over the world, mostly for Lloyds of London, an insurance company. But he had no motive to get involved in the Gardner Museum case. The artwork hadn't been insured, so there was no company to hire him. And the museum didn't reach out independently. For years, he followed the case from afar and grew frustrated with its lack of progress. Until finally, in the year 2000, Smith decided to throw his hat in the ring. Solving the largest art heist of all time would be the perfect way to end his long career. Smith knew the heist was fading from public memory and hoped his minor celebrity could shed some new light on the case. The first action he took was to contact journalists, filmmakers, and TV producers to get the story back out in the world. Above all else, he wanted to remind everyone, including the thieves, that there was a $5 million reward for anyone who could help locate the stolen art. Like the FBI before him, he started a toll-free tip line and website. And in no time, he found himself inundated with leads. Most of them were fake, people trying to cash in on the reward. 
But Smith kept detailed records of every one and dug deeper into anything that seemed promising. He worked 10 hours a day, every day, on the case. The 74-year-old wanted to locate the lost paintings if it was the last thing he ever did. Smith's efforts eventually led him to an eccentric conman and petty criminal named William Youngworth III, who said he had crucial information on the heist. Youngworth had made this claim before, both to the press and the FBI. In fact, three years earlier, in 1997, he brought a Boston Herald reporter to a storage facility in Brooklyn and allegedly showed him one of the stolen Rembrandt paintings. But while the reporter believed the painting was real, the FBI didn't. Smith knew the con man couldn't have been one of the thieves himself. Youngworth had been in prison at the time of the heist. But for reasons that aren't entirely clear, he believed Youngworth either had real information on the whereabouts of the paintings or knew who did. In time, Smith formed a rapport with Youngworth. He even sent him cash in exchange for continuing conversations. He promised to keep them confidential, away from the prying eyes of the FBI. Over the course of their correspondence, Youngworth allegedly told Smith, if those involved in the heist were offered blanket amnesty, the artwork could be returned immediately. Of course, in order to make any kind of deal happen, Smith needed proof. So he asked Youngworth to supply paint chips to verify that he had access to the actual Rembrandts and Vermeers. Youngworth clammed up at the request. In addition to providing no evidence, he grew paranoid and even accused Smith of working with the FBI to frame him for the crime. In no time, the spools started to unravel, and Youngworth's claims became increasingly contradictory. In their first conversations, Youngworth claimed the robbers committed the crime on behalf of the Yakuza, a Japanese transnational crime syndicate. But he eventually changed his story to blame a band of local bank robbers. And at least once, he implied he'd planned the heist himself. Youngworth also waffled on the location of the paintings. Most of the time, he claimed they were in New York. But sometimes, he mentioned the artwork had been smuggled out of the country. Smith anticipated inconsistencies and exaggerations, and for some reason, he still believed there was truth to the grifters' claims, possibly because the Boston Globe reporter once vouched for the Rembrandt painting. But his patience was wearing thin. Smith gave Youngworth one last chance. He delivered an ultimatum. Youngworth needed to provide proof of the painting's location and that they were real, or Smith would remove the reward money and legal immunity from the table. Youngworth responded by demanding $1,400 cash to bring Smith to the paintings, warning that he'd be unable to contact the outside world for the duration of the long, arduous trip. This was the final straw. It was time to move on. Back at square one, Smith turned his attention on an infamous art thief named Miles Connor. The FBI previously ruled him out as a suspect because he was in jail at the time of the heist. But in the 1970s, Connor stole a Rembrandt painting from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Over the course of his long criminal career, Connor stole art from the Metropolitan Museum in New York, 
broke into the Smithsonian and swiped Chinese beakers from the Forbes House Museum. By the time Smith tracked him down over a decade later, Connor was out of prison and supposedly retired from his life of crime. But he had also suffered a massive heart attack back in 1998 at the tail end of his sentence, leaving Connor with slurred speech, physical disabilities, and memory problems. In the immediate aftermath, he could barely remember anything at all. But as he recovered, memories started flooding back, including memories of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And now he wanted to talk. Connor reportedly told Smith that he'd planned a heist of the Gardner Museum in the late 1980s. And he'd recruited one of his friends as an accomplice, an experienced criminal named Bobby Donati. He and Donati had apparently made multiple walkthroughs of the museum, picking out the exact pieces they wanted to steal. Connor was interested in the Chinese beaker. Donati wanted the eagle finial atop the flagpole in the short gallery. You remember from last time, both were stolen in the 1990 heist. The FBI was right. Connor was in prison at the time of the heist. He'd been arrested and convicted of smuggling stolen goods across state lines. But according to Connor, the burglary went ahead as planned, performed by Bobby Donati and a man named David Houghton. Connor's version of events added up, and he didn't seem to have any motivation to lie. But unfortunately, Smith wasn't any closer to finding the lost art. Like so many other suspects in the case, Houghton and Donati were both dead. In the summer of 1991, a little over a year after the heist, officials learned Bobby Donati had been murdered. Someone had clubbed him over the head, stabbed him 28 times, and slit his throat. Similar to Leonard DiMuzio, his body was left in the trunk of his car. His murder, like the Gardner heist, remains unsolved. A year later, David Houghton died of a heart attack. Of course, when you have ties to the mob, winding up dead under mysterious circumstances isn't necessarily uncommon. But five promising suspects dying in the two years after the Gardner heist seemed to be more than a coincidence. Some even suspected the case was cursed. And in the early 2000s, that curse traveled from suspects to investigators. In 2003, seven years after being placed in charge of the investigation, FBI agent Neil Cronin died suddenly in a car accident. Two years later, Harold Smith passed from skin cancer at the age of 78. He worked on the Gardner case up until the day he died, never seeing the paintings returned. But the reason investigators never found an answer could be because they weren't the only ones looking. As it turned out, Boston criminals wanted to get to the bottom of the mystery as well. And this included the most dangerous in the city, Whitey Bulger. Coming up, Boston's deadliest gangster searches for the stolen artwork. Now, back to the story. At the time of the Gardner Museum heist in March of 1990, 60-year-old Whitey Bulger was at the height of his criminal powers. 
As leader of the violent Winter Hill Gang, he became one of the most prominent and feared mobsters in South Boston. Smart, tough, and sadistic, he reportedly enjoyed torturing and killing his enemies himself. According to associates, in 1990, Bulger took an interest in the Gardner heist. After all, the robbery happened squarely on his turf in South Boston. So he apparently decided to join the fray and track down the stolen artwork himself. As it turned out, Bulger may have found out what investigators hadn't managed to, thanks in large part to his connections. At the time, Bulger's brother was serving as president of the Massachusetts State Senate. Besides, Bulger had an even more powerful ally, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Beginning in 1975 and continuing throughout the 80s, Whitey Bulger acted as an informant to the FBI. For the most part, he passed them information that could be used against his biggest rival gang, the Italian-American Cosa Nostra. In return, the FBI turned a blind eye to some of Bulger's criminal behavior. For almost two decades, Bulger used the FBI to gain even more power in Boston. And in 1990, he wielded that power to find out who robbed the Gardner Museum. There are two primary reasons to steal priceless works of art. First, money. And second, leverage. Whitey Bulger wanted money. Because the robbery happened in his neighborhood, he believed he was owed tribute, meaning a cut of any criminal venture in his territory. But more importantly, Bulger wanted to use the paintings as hostages, more or less. Due to their incredible value, they could be used as leverage with law enforcement. You'll remember we mentioned a few instances of the FBI offering sentence reductions in exchange for mere information about the paintings. Bulger could only imagine the cards he would hold if he knew the actual whereabouts of the art. So shortly after the robbery, Bulger reportedly tasked several men with finding the paintings. And one of them may have done it. In 1992, a drug dealer and Bulger associate named Joe Murray contacted an ex-FBI agent. He claimed he had access to the stolen Gardner Museum paintings, but in a matter of weeks, Murray turned up dead, shot at close range by his wife, possibly at the behest of Whitey Bulger. Bulger couldn't afford the FBI finding the pieces and it's likely he was motivated by more than art and money. Bulger possibly wanted the paintings to fight a war. In the late 20th century, the violent conflict in Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles, reached a boiling point. Clashes between Irish nationalists and United Kingdom loyalists grew increasingly violent. Car bombs, gunfights, and assassinations rattled Belfast and London. Whitey Bulger, son of an Irish immigrant, was one of many Irish-American mobsters who became involved. For years, he sent money and weapons to his nationalist allies across the pond. If he successfully found the Gardner paintings, some experts theorized that Bulger would have sent them overseas to Ireland, 
There, they could be used by the IRA as leverage against the British government. Irish nationalists had used stolen artwork before. Nearly two decades prior to the Gardner heist, a pair of Irish nationalists stole 19 paintings, including one by the prized Baroque painter Johannes Vermeer from the Rusborough House in Dublin. The art was worth an estimated $20 million, making it one of the largest art heists in history at the time. The thieves attempted to ransom the paintings back to the Irish government, demanding the release of several IRA-affiliated militants from prison. But ultimately, the plan fell apart and the criminals were arrested. There were two major similarities between the Rustborough House heist and the Gardner Museum heist. First, the thieves used disguises to gain entry. And second, they targeted a Johannes Vermeer painting. Charles Hill was a retired detective who spent his career recovering stolen art for Scotland Yard. He counted himself among the many experts who believed the Gardner Museum paintings made their way to Ireland. Hill believed Whitey Bulger found the paintings sometime in the early 90s. Though it's possible Bulger was involved in the robbery itself, Hill thought it was more likely that he successfully tracked down the paintings in the aftermath of the heist and sent them over to Ireland. Of course, it's just a theory, one with only circumstantial evidence and speculation to support it. But Hill wasn't the only one who suspected Whitey Bulger was somehow involved in the heist. Director of the Gardner Museum, Anne Hawley, did as well. Hawley even approached Bulger's brother, State Senator William Bulger, to see if he could provide any insight. When he refused, she tried contacting the Catholic Pope, hoping spiritual pressure might convince the thieves to return the paintings. But her efforts were in vain. In 1994, Whitey Bulger's reign in Boston came to an abrupt end. His former ally, the FBI, turned on him. Together with a number of other federal agencies, they combined forces and took down his operations. Bulger managed to slip away. He fled the city and began life as one of the most wanted fugitives in the United States. It took 17 years, but the FBI finally tracked him down. In the summer of 2011, the FBI arrested the 81-year-old former kingpin in California. The FBI interrogated Bulger about the Gardner heist, but he provided no information. Then, in 2013, 23 years after the heist, the agency broke their decades-long silence and made a startling announcement. In a press conference, they declared they finally knew who committed the theft. The thieves were members of an East Coast criminal organization. They'd apparently tried to sell the paintings at least once in Philadelphia over a decade after the theft. The FBI chose not to release the names, so the burglars could have been any combination of Bobby Donati, David Houghton, Robert Garente, Stephen Rossetti, David Turner, or Leonard DiMuzio, or someone else entirely. As for the paintings, the FBI used the press conference to, once again, put out a call for tips on the whereabouts of the missing artwork. And once again, they highlighted the $5 million reward. 
This announcement didn't have its desired effect. Many observers reacted with skepticism, wondering whether the FBI lied about knowing the thieves' identities. Others suggested the FBI's investigation had been a fraud from the very beginning. It was, after all, the same Boston division that had been allied with Whitey Bulger for decades. Some theorized the FBI knew that members of the Boston mob, and potentially Whitey Bulger himself, were involved from the beginning. The only reason they took control of the case was to keep their own association with the mob a secret. In an interview, Anne Hawley, director of the Gardner Museum, called the FBI investigation possibly corrupted and compromised from the start. But like every other theory in the Gardner case, there isn't much evidence to support it. Only speculation. If Whitey Bulger did know anything, it died with him. On October 30th, 2018, he was murdered in prison. It's been over 30 years since the heist, and the paintings are no closer to being returned than they were on March 19, 1990. Empty painting frames hang on the walls in the places where the Rembrandt and Vermeer paintings were once displayed. They serve as a visual reminder of what the museum and the art world has lost. As years pass, the mystery only becomes more difficult to solve, but the Gardner Museum hasn't given up hope. In 2017, they doubled the reward money to $10 million, just about making up for inflation. The extra money sparked a new wave of tips and leads. One day, the paintings will hopefully return to their empty frames. Until then, the investigation remains ongoing. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. For more information on the Gardner Museum heist, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Gardner Heist by Ulrich Boser and Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist by Stephen Kirchin, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlane, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.